Well, today we're continuing in our series called, simply called The Gospel. And last week we talked about this idea that the word gospel really comes from this idea that it's this announcement. And in particular, it's this announcement of good news that there is a new um, king, leader, ruler, and not only that, kingdom. And last week we began by just talking about this idea that Jesus is God come to be with us. That the God of all the universe drew near so we could become new because he loves us. And uh, we talked about this, that that is this first real basis of this idea. When we talk about the gospel, which we hear lots of different things of what that means, that really the biggest, most important thing it means is that the new king in his kingdom has arrived. And the really good news is that's good news for all people. Now, I'm sure you're wondering why I have this up here uh, this morning. So I, I want to play a game this morning as we begin. Hopefully that's okay. I think church should be a place where uh, we should be able to have fun and play. So I recently uh, was at someone's house and I uh, got the chance to play uh, Pictionary with like four or five adults plus some children, you know, maybe the oldest being like eight years old, which was quite an interesting um, experience. But uh, today, here's what I need. I need uh, two volunteers real quick who either uh, like to draw or, are, or admit they're terrible drawers. Either way, it's going to be fine. So I need, I need a couple volunteers. Come on. Otherwise, I'm going to... All right, Taylor, come on. Della, come on. Give them a hand. So here's basically what's going to happen, okay? Um, Taylor, you are going to represent this side of the congregation, Della, you're going to represent this side of the congregation, okay? Yeah. So here's what's going to happen. Uh, I, I have uh, three things for each. So here's essentially, if you remember, if you don't know what Pictionary is, here's, here's the game. They're each, uh, they're going to take turns. They're going to get a, uh, something written on one of these note cards. And what they have to do without speaking, without writing it, anything like that, they have to draw the thing that is on the paper and give uh, a picture for people. And then you in the audience, what you need to do is you need to throw out the suggestions of what they are. Does that make sense? Are you, are you clear with that? Those rules? Um, perfect. Obviously, if your other, if the other team is playing, you don't want to guess it. You might want to throw in some, you know, fake things in there if you want. That's what I would do. Um, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to set a timer uh, for 30 seconds. Actually, no, well, 30 seconds is too short. Let's do 30 minutes. Whoa. That's going to cut into at least my hour and a half message. Um, I'm going to give you 45 seconds, okay? Uh, we're going we're to let ladies go first. And so that is what you have to draw. You can pick. Do you want pur- purple or blue? You want purple or blue? You pick. All right. All right, so remember, this side of the room, you guys are guessing. On your mark, get set, go. Hey, that was pretty good. That's easy peasy. We start, we're starting pretty early, easy. All right, Taylor, you're up next. Not too hard. Oh, wait. There's a timer. Go. Remember, you're, you're guessing on this side, guys. You might want to start throwing some stuff out here. Hey, I heard it. It was cat. Very nice. All right. 
We might start getting a little bit more difficult here. Maybe. Ready and go. Man. I would have guessed B, maybe. Not trying to hate. I'm just, that's, you guys do have a little connection over there. All right. Taylor. Easy? All right. On your mark, get set, go. Ding, ding, ding. All right, guys, this is where it's... This is, this is where one of, the, the, one of them gets a little bit more big. Are right, you ready? Set, go. Man! Goodness gracious. Apparently I should have picked different ones. To be honest, it was really hard not to pick just food. I was kind of hungry this morning. All right, last one, Taylor. Man, I was hoping you guys would get at least one where you wouldn't get anything. Maybe we should have done ten seconds. All right. Ready? Go. Bing, 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 bing. All right, give them a hand. I was kind of hoping that maybe someone would lose on at least one of them. My plan didn't work out there. How many of you guys have played Pictionary before? How many of you would be willing to admit that you have drawn things that you're not too proud of, that your um, elementary school art teacher would be like, good Lord, what is wrong with you? You know, kind of like the, what is it, the Billy Madison, you, you get no points, you deserve nothing. That is more of what usually is mine when I draw different things. Pictionary is a fun game though, right? Because the whole concept of the game is that you get something that is written down. You get a concept, you get a image, you get something and you have to make it come to life, right? Anyone grew up watching SpongeBob where there's the doodle bob? You know what I'm talking about. Uh, there's this whole idea of how you take something that seems like it is not really have a, a, a solid uh, form and it really sort of begins to come to life. If I was to ask you, what is love, or how would you draw love, what would you do? I mean, as you saw Taylor did, he, he drew a heart. That's one of the easy ways, right? But in a lot of ways, we'd probably think, okay, romantic love, right? That's, that's romantic love. How would you draw the love of God? What would it look like? I hear the cross, maybe an empty tomb. It, might I say that if, if we really wanted to see what love is, we'd look at Jesus. Last week as we talked, we talked about this idea that if you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, if you're curious, who is this God of all the universe that people talk about, what does he look like? Well, he looks like Jesus. He epitomizes Jesus. Jesus is quite literally, as the Gospel of John says, the Word became flesh. And so I want to I want to talk a little bit more about that this morning. I want to talk about what love is, and in particular, here's what I want us to, to 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 think about and understand as we talk through more of this idea of what is the gospel. 
is just this, that Jesus, one of the chief things he did in coming to earth is to show us what love is and how to live it and how to give it. So if you have a Bible this morning, you can open up to the, uh, the uh, book of First John, First uh, John chapter 4. We're going to hang out in there quite a bit and kind of go back and forth in different places. If you don't have a Bible, um, you are more than welcome. You'll see stuff up on the screen. But this comes from First uh, John chapter 4, uh, verses 7 and 8. And it just says this, beloved. Now, some of your translations, if you look at it, it might say, um, friends or things like that. Now, if we really wanted to tease it out, really a better word would just be this, uh, those who are agape. Now, agape is this uh, Greek word that uh, represents love. And it's not love like you love your mama or you love your significant other or you love donuts. Uh, but this is this selfless, sacrificial love that only comes from God. And so, When John is writing, he just says, those who are agape, beloved. I mean, in some ways, our words don't fully fully get the the, the gist of of what he is meaning here. Uh, But he's really just trying to say, you have no idea how loved you are. So let us love one another. For love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Let's start with that last little basis there that's in yellow. God is love. Now, that's a big, big concept, right? And we could probably go in a lot of different directions. But here's the the kind of mind-blowing, crazy little thing you're not going to hear a lot of teachers bring in. And I don't want to brag. I'm, I'm pretty smart. So maybe lean in a little bit. You know what that means? It means he's love. It means what it says. It means that in the essence of who God is, he is love. Now, that essence expresses itself in different ways in terms of him being righteous and and, 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 and being full of truth and justice, of, of being sovereign, of being holy and all of those things. But at the very forefront, the thing that most expresses who God is, is love. And the rest, in many ways, of the ways that we describe him as we've experienced him or we see him in Scripture are just sort of, in some ways, the byproduct of his being love. Now, in the less than famous uh, John 3.16, 1 John 3.16, John wrote this. He said, this is how we know what love is. So you guys want to know what love is? That Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And that we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Again, put another way, this is how we know what God looks like. We want to know what God looks like, and if God is love, if we want to know what love looks like, really what it looks like is Jesus coming to earth, being God in flesh, and dying on the cross for our sins. I mean, that is that sounds too good to be true, too basic, too bare bones, but it's true. And yet, you know what's funny? I don't know if any of you all do this. There's times where I hear that and I'm still like, but what else, God? Come on now. There's got to be something else in this, right? Like I got to I gotta dress a certain way maybe or um, should I do my hair a certain way or um, g- give me a little bit more of, of rule books. And I think that's the issue where we begin to dilute the gospel and the good news of Jesus, right? Is that in some ways for many of us where we have started has been, let me start with the byproduct. Let me start with how do I live, and then I'll experience the love. 
When in reality, it's the first part of the gospel truly is just the acknowledgement that God loves you so stinking much that he came here for you. And not only that, he wanted you to know what his love looked like, that he became flesh and blood. He quite literally said, okay, listen, I'm trying to draw this for you. I mean, if you want to know what the Old Testament is in a lot of ways, it's like God is trying to play Pictionary through prophets and all sorts of things. And he's like, see, this is what I am. And they're like, well, wait a second. Wait, do you mean since you freed us, so you, you actually want us to like be faithful to, I don't know. I mean, you came through for us many times, but ah. I mean, this is sort of that trump card where, where, where in some ways God is finally like, listen, let's, let me stop doing this and let me just completely show you. Let me give you a gimme. First John chapter four, starting in verse 13, John elaborates even more about this concept of, of love and God being love and, 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 and how Jesus shows us this idea of love. He says this, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. Let's pause there for just a second. As Jesus was uh, with his disciples, he's going to leave. He begins to talk with them more and more about, hey, this is how you're going to know what love truly is. I'm going to die on a cross three days later. I'm going to be raised from the dead. I'm going to leave you. But don't worry. I'm sending you something even better. While in some ways we obviously understand that the gospel, the good news, really is the fact that Jesus came flesh and blood and died for us, one of the greatest byproducts, one of the greatest um, continuations of this love story is the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is for every single one of us who acknowledge Jesus as Lord, becoming a follower of Jesus, that the coolest thing is that rather than God being here on earth in the flesh of one person, he can live inside each and every one of us. Okay, back to the text. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And this is how Love is made complete among us so that we will have the confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. He goes on and he talks about this love. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect love. We love because he first loved us. I love the way that John breaks down so many things. There There are so uh, many different things for us to acknowledge in this text. But here's what I really want us to acknowledge. In some ways, you could read this and you could swap out the word love for God. Because again, if, if, if the conceptualness is that God is love, we really could say things like this. There is no fear in God. that in the, the perfect love of God and the perfect relationship of God, that fear that you have is driven out because this fear has to do with punishment. You know, I mentioned before that, you know, the famous verse that probably anyone who, even if they've never been to church before, could quote is, of course, what? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believe in him shall not perish and have eternal life, which is great. 
But then equally as important, equally as great, John 3.17. For God did not send his son in this world to condemn this world, but to save this world. You see, this perfect love that is displayed has come not to condemn us, not to judge us, but to save us. But also in this text, we find that John doesn't mince his words in this idea that he doesn't say that if there's judgment, he says when the day of judgment comes, we can have confidence that when there does come the day where we have to stand before God, very end, what's amazing about this is he's essentially saying, listen, we could have confidence. Even though you don't deserve that confidence, even though there's nothing you could have done to earn any sort of reprieve from this, because of him, you can have confidence. Because he is good, because he truly is just love, you can have confidence. You don't have to sit back and wonder and worry, what does this mean? You see, uh, Jesus not only gave us love, but he embodies love. Not only does he give us this love that we experience, but he gives us this embodiment of love that, as John talks about at the end there, is that we have the opportunity that out of the byproduct of the love that we receive because of the work that he did on the cross, we can live that out and give that out to others. Now, in Romans, Paul writes in chapter 5, he says this, You see, at just the right time, when you are still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, pause for a second. Anyone ever read texts like that and think like, man, those poor ungodly idiots, I'm glad I'm not one of them. I think in some ways, if we just wanted to, to... to read it, we should really read it in that this is us. So, hey, listen, at one time you, you were powerless and you were very ungodly. But in other ways, you didn't stand a chance. Paul goes on and he says this, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. You know, he starts to build this case. Hey, you know what? Very rarely will someone say, listen, this person is great. I will stand in their place and die for them. You know, maybe a parent might do that for their child. Um, maybe, maybe something like that may happen. But rarely, most of us, if we're honest, we're pretty selfish. We're probably not giving up our lives for someone else. So he starts to build this case. Okay, so you were kind of terrible and not really great. But God decides to do this. And he says this. He said, but God demonstrates his love. He doesn't say demonstrated. He says demonstrates his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I think that's key to understand this concept. You know, if it was demonstrated, it would mean that it was sort of this one-time thing that happens and then it's done. But we see that the work of the cross, the work of Christ, the work of his sacrifice is something that as uh, Scripture talks about how his mercies are new for us each morning. But it's this picture. It's this picture for what does love look like. He goes on in verses 9 through 11 and says this, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemy, that hurts, doesn't it, a little bit? As we are God's enemy, we are reconciled to him through the death of his son. 
How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Put in a more common language, we were hopeless, he came as hope. We didn't stand a chance, so he stood up for us. We were enemies, he made us family. It's pretty amazing news. I mean, when I put myself in, 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 in the, the shoes of God, there's part of me that's like, man, no offense, no lightning on this day, but like, man, God, you're an idiot. Like, you knew that we were really terrible. You knew that we were unfaithful. You knew that we were going to continue to be. And yet you gave your one and only son. Now, honestly, other than maybe in the middle of the night when my children aren't sleeping, I've never thought about sacrificing my children, okay? I wouldn't do that. Don't judge me. I know some of you guys have thought this too. But I mean, truly, when you think about it, there's, there's really a lo- losing deal. I mean, that's, that's sort of this beauty of this whole concept of grace, is we win out way more than God does. I mean, while God's greatest desire is that he would have us in relationship, that we would give our soul attention and allegiance and relationship and love to him, I mean, truly, he gives up everything. And while we're called to give up everything, it doesn't even pale in comparison the amount of sacrifice that he gives for us and what we get in return. In Colossians, Paul wrote this. He said, you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. But God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. I love the imagery there. That the cross gives us this beautiful image of this public victory. And I love how he uses the word shame, right? I mean, we've, we've talked a lot about shame here and how it's, it's not really something of God. But I mean, he's essentially saying like, hey, what's up, Satan? Remember that time I owned you? Remember that time that I made a way for the people that you so desperately desire to deceive? You see, in Jesus, in Jesus, Jesus and the cross, they paint this picture for us of a heart of a selfless and sacrificial love. That if you ever want to know what does love look like, if you ever want to know how can I really know that God loves me, we have nowhere to look other than in Jesus, in his life, death, and his resurrection. Every single one of us we're in an indebtedness God. We are in a system where despite our best efforts, we didn't stand a chance. And God didn't say, all right, let me just, let me just wave my magic wand and forgive this and change the system. He said, I'll do one better. I will demonstrate, I will show, I will triumph over by giving the greatest imagery ever. 
Send my son to come to live, to be the way, and to die so that we could live. Galatians, it says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We live in a way that gives the opportunity to show others what love is and who love is. Last week I showed a video on the word gospel from uh, this organization called The Bible Project. And today I want to show you another uh, video from them, and this one is on the word witness. Throughout Scripture, uh, we see that oftentimes there is this talk of being a witness. You know, sometimes we even still use the, the term that, that, that someone was witnessing for Christ. And I want you to watch this video, uh, and, and maybe in general as you're watching it, it's really interesting, but think about too, does your life represent and live out a witness for Christ and his love? Check out this video real quick. When you hear the word witness, you might think of someone who sees something shocking or important and then shares their testimony with others. The word witness is used like this in the Bible too, but here's what's really fascinating. This word actually helps us understand the entire storyline of scripture. In the Bible, a witness is basically someone who sees something important or amazing. In Hebrew, this person is an aide, and in Greek, a martus. And if this person begins to share what they've seen, we call this bearing witness, in Hebrew, oud, and in Greek, martyreo. So in the story of Ruth, when Boaz buys land from Naomi's family, he calls together witnesses to see the transaction, so that if there's a later dispute about the land, they can bear witness about what they saw. So that's the basic meaning of the word witness. Now, if we follow this idea throughout the Bible, we learn that God wants a group of witnesses, people who see and experience him to ood or represent him to the world. So beginning with the story of the Exodus, the people of Israel witness Yahweh as the powerful king of the nations when he rescues them from slavery. Then he appoints this one nation to bear witness or ood to the rest of the nations about what they experienced. He calls them a kingdom of priests or people who connect all other nations to Yahweh, the true God and king. But there's a big problem. The Israelites aren't good witnesses. In fact, they start worshiping other gods. So God raises up a chief witness, Moses, to ood or bear witness to the people who are supposed to be the real witnesses. When Moses meets with Yahweh on Mount Sinai, he sees and experiences God face to face. When he comes down, he ooods, he bears witness to the people about his experience. He even writes a song as a witness so that they would never forget how God has cared for and rescued them. But as the story goes on, Israel does forget. They fail to truly see God, so they fail as his witnesses. So God raises up prophets who are like Moses to ood, to open their eyes to who their God really is. Like Isaiah, he has a vision of God as the cosmic king, and he's sent to ood to bear witness to the Israel of his day because they're blind, they're corrupt, and they don't recognize God as their king. So Isaiah says that one day, God will raise up the ultimate chief witness, a figure called the servant. He will open the eyes of the blind so that they can truly see Yahweh and bear witness to the nations that their God is the king who will rescue the world. 
And now, when we turn to the story of Jesus, we find him claiming to be that servant and witness spoken of by Isaiah. He's the ultimate witness, or in Greek, the martus. Crowds of people witness him saying that he's bringing God's kingdom, that it's here, right now, through him. They see Jesus healing people, even restoring sight to the blind. Many recognize who he is and respond to his message, but many others still refuse to truly see. Even the nation's leaders won't listen to him. Rather, they kill Jesus for bearing witness to God's kingdom, that is, for being a martyr. In fact, this is where the word martyr comes from. But then, after Jesus' death, something amazing happens. Jesus' friends see him alive from the dead, and they recognize that he is the divine king, Yahweh himself, who has come to rescue the world. After that, Jesus sends them out to martyreo, that is, to bear witness to the nations, to open their eyes to this risen king who has conquered death and who offers freedom and rescue and the hope of a new creation. And it's this story about Jesus that's been spread all around the world by faithful witnesses. And to this day, when someone hears the story of Jesus and experiences the love of God for all humanity, the most natural thing to do is to simply bear witness. So here's a question. If someone was to ask you, or if I was to ask someone, about your life, maybe someone who's very close to you, maybe a family member, maybe a child, maybe a coworker, or a best friend, does your life bear witness to the good news of Jesus and his love? Does the way that you engage in communication with the people you're closest to bear witness to the good news of Jesus and his love? Does the way that you engage with your enemies, the people who frustrate you and irk you to no end, to your coworkers, classmates, neighbors, does it bear witness to this love? You see, as followers of Jesus, people who claim to be made new by him, who, who, who say, yes, I acknowledge your lordship, I acknowledge my sin, and yes, I want that blood that was paid on my behalf, yes, I will, I will claim, yes, that he can cover that for me. Has your heart and your life been transformed so as to witness to that? I mean, one of the beauties of reading through uh, the different books in the, the the New Testament, in particular, Paul's life is a great example. Is how not only does he bear witness to what he saw and experienced through Christ, but his life was a demonstration. It was a display. It was a witness. The changing, transforming power of love, of this agape love. And so my hope and prayer is that you would just simply think through does your life project that? And do you take the opportunities to bear witness to what Christ has done in your life? And that doesn't mean you need to stop and stand on a, on a street corner with a sign. doesn't mean you need to go and knock on every single one of your neighbor's doors this week and say, have you heard the good news of Jesus Christ? Maybe start first with, hi, my name's Aaron. Here's a cup of coffee. 
In 1 John chapter 4, we didn't read this part earlier, but in verses 11 through 12, it just says this. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Another way to put it, our friends who have never truly seen love, probably the place it will first start is by seeing that love expressed through us. Jesus said the two greatest commandments are this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and equally as important, hand-in-hand, balanced, love your neighbor as yourself. Whatever your story is, my hope and prayer is that this morning you hear that despite your brokenness, that while you are still a sinner, while you are still an enemy, God crossed the line by sending His Son and dying for you so you could be family. So you could come and sit at His table. That the identity as son or daughter could be reclaimed. Not by any effort of yourself, but surely out of the greatest act and demonstration of love. In the book of Isaiah, the book of prophecy, there's a line in there that talks about how much God loves his people. And it quite literally talks about how the God of all the universe has your name engraved on his palm. How beautiful the imagery of a God who loves us at such a crazy capacity that we would be written on his hand. And what beautiful poetic justice. Hundreds of years later, after that prophecy was written, that the God of all the universe would show his love by having his hands pierced for every single one of us. Would you guys stand? And I'm going to pray and we're going to sing one last song. Let's pray. God, we thank you for loving us so much that honestly, it doesn't even make sense for you other than the fact that it is just who you are. God, this morning we acknowledge our weakness, our brokenness, and our sin. God, we ask for your forgiveness and we thank you the demonstration of love that we find in Jesus. We thank you for the symbol of the cross. But God, we thank you for the victory that you had three days later. We thank you for the fact that we have victory today because of you. God, we ask this morning that whatever, whatever thing you want to say to us, whatever thing you want to challenge or Um, convict us with this morning. God, we ask that you would open our ears and open our hearts so we could hear that. God, maybe for some of us, we have to just simply start by acknowledging the fact that, God, we are not living out the good news. That, God, we have heard the news, but we're not bearing witness to it. God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would invade us and would begin to transform us. 
God, I pray for some of us, God, maybe as I, as I ask the question of are we bearing witness to, to certain people, maybe it was by saying a family member or a friend or a coworker, God, I pray that maybe that would give them a vision of a person, God, who maybe you have called them to bear witness to your love to them. God, whatever it is you want to say to us this morning, that I pray most of all, no matter what, that we would hear most of all, that we are a son, we are a daughter, who is dearly and desperately loved. And that, God, everything else would flow as a byproduct out of that love and identity. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.